On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to talk about a proposal by New Democrat leader Jugmeet Singh. He was on with Bill Kelly on Monday that we should lower the voting age to 16. Is that a good idea? We're going to talk with someone who teaches civics. He's an award-winning teacher. But whether or not we should be thinking about doing that. And then... Don Robertson, who's here every Monday on the podcast, we're going to be chatting about sports, specifically the Raptors parade, what this means for the Maple Leafs down the road, and was Simone Lawrence's two-game suspension for that filthy hit on Zach Caleros warranted or too much or too little? Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Earlier today, I was listening to Bill Kelly, 9 o'clock this morning. I hope you were as well. If you weren't, however... We're going to catch you up a little bit because Bill had Jugmeet Singh, who is the federal NDP leader, on his show this morning. Great interview. Go to 900CHML.com, find Bill's show, listen to the whole thing. We're only going to play you a little tiny clip here. Uh, Because Mr. Singh was pitching his platform for the coming federal election, and among the things that he is proposing, and there's a lot of them, (laughs) that we won't get into it today, but that will cost a lot of money, different topic for a different day. Uh, But one of the things he was proposing is allowing 16-year-olds to vote. Something that has been talked about for a while in this country now, but let's take a listen to what Jugmeet Singh and Bill Kelly had to say about this. Lowering the voting age to 16. Uh, Very interesting debate, very interesting discussion. Uh, I guess the first question is why 16? Why pick that number? Uh, Well, the reason why 16 is we're hoping to incorporate it into high school. And and the reason why I think, uh, again, looking into some other jurisdictions for, for help on this, we're seeing less and less civic engagement. And, and one of the arguments is if, if it's included as a part of the education curriculum, which it is in most provinces, there is a civics engagement. There is a part where you discuss politics and discuss parties. There isn't a way for them, those students, to exercise that, that knowledge. If we have high school students learning about the Constitution, learning about civics, learning about political system and engagement, and then they also get to vote, I think we'll see higher turnouts for voting it's a way of shifting the culture a bit and getting people more used to voting. And it's a way to, uh, this is where people are more likely to vote. When you're in high school, you're normally uh, in a stable home, you're at home. But once you maybe go away for school, once you graduate from high school, you might go away to college or to university. And then you're not sure where to vote. You don't have the same familiarity. You're not with your family. So we're thinking that this would be a good way to increase voter turnout and get more young people voting. That again was Jugmeet Singh, the federal NDP leader. Well, let me bring in a guy who knows his way around this topic. His name is Nathan Tidridge. He's an award-winning civics teacher at Waterdown District High School. Nathan, thanks for doing this today. Hey, Scott. Good to be back on the show. I know that there was an awful lot of stuff that he said in there, but at the essential core of his point, is he right? Well, it's an interesting... It's an interesting idea. Before coming on the show, I, I looked at jurisdictions that where the voting age is 16, and, and there's a few of them, the biggest being Brazil. But um, I think there's a, a lot of things that would have to happen in order for the voting for a 16, a 16-year-old to vote uh, in an educated way. So I think we, we'd have some work to do if that was something that, that was decided on. Well, the idea behind it, again, picking up from what Mr. Singh said, and there are other, others who could probably defend this or argue this in a different way, but I'm just picking up his points, uh, yeah. would be that students are already learning civics in school all over the country, so let's put that into practical action. 
Yeah, and I, if only that were true. Uh, the, the, the fact is that students aren't learning civics all over the country. Uh, only Ontario has a civics course, and it's a half-credit course, and it's in grade 10. So 15, 16-year-olds. But there's no other uh, provincial jurisdiction that's teaching it. So, huh. uh, yeah, so we would actually, yeah, I, I would agree that we would have to have civics taught all over the country. Uh, it should be a, a full credit course before we begin uh, talking about uh, uh, 16-year-old voting. That, that's year-old voting. That's surprising to me because one of his points was this is happening all over the country. They are therefore prepared to go out and cast the ballot. I would be very interested to know uh, where he, where that information is coming from. Uh, I've advocated for a long time that we need to have civics taught across this country, but uh, it really isn't, and it's one of the reasons why our civic literacy in Canada is uh, is quite low. Um, uh, Canadians, by and large, don't understand our system of government, and uh, I think that gets reflected in uh, at the polls with with low voter turnouts. Do you do you believe then that understanding the systems of government and the levers of power and all the rest translates into people wanting to go out and participate? Uh, absolutely. I think it's key. Uh, once you understand how the system actually works and how we actually elect parliaments and, and governments and how they're formed, uh, it, it, the next step is to become an engaged, active member in that. But most people just think that, you know, every four years they're, they're electing a prime minister or a premier, which is completely not true. And, and that gets used by political parties sometimes in order to get elected. And, uh, yeah, we need we need to better improve our education. Well, this then creates another question because this weekend in Ontario, the NDP had their provincial uh, party policy or party get together, and they passed a resolution to lower the voting age to fourteen, which would seem to raise even more questions then about whether or not you are ready to vote. Yeah, I mean, the pro- yeah, that, that, that's the issue. I mean, 14-year-olds and 16-year-olds, I'm with them every day. They're very passionate, and they're very uh, engaged in a lot of different issues. But as far as understanding how our government works, um, I, I don't know if we're there yet. Uh, certainly not outside of Ontario, where it's not really being discussed. Passionate, before we got to take a break here, but passionate about what, Nathan? Because it seems to me that a lot of the stuff they are passionate about is stuff their friends are passionate about. It's a, it's, I don't want to say groupthink, but if you yep. are, th- there is a collective, and therefore, uh, I don't know how much individual political thought is going on. I think if you uh, talked right now to a, to a 15 or 16-year-old, and you talked about, for example, the environment, uh, I think you would get a pretty uh, well-thought-out individual answer on that. I, I don't think it's, it's, it's groupthink there. I do think that that is something that is really on the minds of young people. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, we're chatting with Nathan Tidridge, who's an award-winning civics teacher at Waterdown District High School, about the proposal that Jugmeet Singh has come forward with as part of the NDP federal platform that the voting age should be reduced to 16. And uh, let me change tack a little bit on this one, Nathan, because in addition to the idea that these younger people are then going to have to understand politics, understand how the process works in order to get them engaged in voting and knowledgeable enough to to cast a ballot. We'd like our voters to have some sort of knowledge. Um, There's a second issue, and this is one that I think concerns a number of people, and that is uh, you can go online right now, anyone can, and type in uh, teachers, politics, bias, whatever else, and there are dozens of stories of parents who get very upset when their kids come home with projects that show the teachers are 
maybe stepping over the line as far as their their own political views and bringing those into the classroom. And uh, I mean, a couple that I just found really quickly from Cam Loops. Uh, uh, it was a which side is left and which side is right in politics. And the question is, which person is racist? And the parent is saying, well, wait a second, that's that's biased. That teachers organizing classroom protests of pipelines. They're saying that's not really, that's a teacher's political view. How do we ensure then that if we're going to lower and lower the age of kids voting, that when a teacher who has strong political views has a captive audience, they aren't using that time to create little voting political clones of themselves? Yeah. I mean, that comes down to the, the, the teaching profession. Uh, I, I'm a civics teacher, and I am a professional, and so I, that's, uh, I take that as a, as a great responsibility. And I don't want – my students don't know my political affiliation, if I even have one. And that's, I think, key to successfully delivering civics. So you're not teaching opinion. You're, you're teaching – uh, issues that are coming up, uh, the mechanics of the, cl- uh, of the political system itself. And when you start straying into those areas, um, that, that does become a problem. And, and uh, you know, you, I would hope that uh, other colleagues um, or, or parents, or, you know, if it comes to that, would, uh, uh, would voice some concerns. But it, it comes down to the professionalism of the individual teacher, and, and, and that... There just there isn't a place for that in the classroom. Well, now that said, and look, the reason you are an award-winning teacher is because of what you just said, that you clearly grasp that concept. Let's give them the concepts, let's give them the information, and let them make some decisions themselves. Yeah. Uh, McLean's not very long ago had a piece out, a long piece. Here's the headline. Why are schools brainwashing our children, protesting oil pipelines, celebrating polygamy? Is the new social justice agenda in class pushing politics at the expense of learning? You're clearly doing it the right way. Clearly, there are enough other people, though, in the profession who are losing right. their way a little bit in this. Right. Um, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is to that. I mean, that's why we have, uh, I mean, on, in Ontario, we have the Ontario College of Teachers, uh, and that's uh, as well it falls to the individual teachers' unions to ensure that their members are are following those rules and uh, and that they are enforced. And I know in my own experience that... Uh, and from my uh, my own you know my own union and my own college of teachers that those those lines are clearly drawn and those expectations are quite high, and so for people who are, are straying across those lines, um, you know there there needs to be consequences for that. And one more thing on this one, and then I'll move along. But we've even yep. seen in recent years because it seems like every political party in Ontario, at one time or other, NDP, Liberal, and Conservative, have run afoul of the teachers' unions, and there have yep. been walkouts by teachers and strikes. Well, if you're a student. The teachers acting in a certain way, if the teachers are talking, that, that is a lesson that they are getting, that these people, whoever's in party, are against teachers. It's, it's a very, very tricky thing to navigate. If we're going to have yeah. younger, more impressionable kids trying, I would think, trying to figure out how not to influence them that way. Yes, and, and I think that's really important. It extends to social media and things like that as well, which teachers are very well, are, we're very aware of that, that in, in this day and age, um, especially in, in the heightened politics, the, the heightened discourse that we're mm. in right now, that we have to be uh, very conscious of that. And, uh, and, and yeah, it is a, uh, it is a line that you, uh, that you have to be aware of every, t- every time you step into a classroom. Would it be your view then, that going back to where we started with this, would it be your view that if we were ever going to do this, if this was really going to be something we, we con- contemplated, that we do have to bring back 
some sort of civics program because look, I, not just kids. We have enough low information voters out there that we're desperately trying to know a little bit so they will go out and vote. We we don't want to create more of those. We want fewer of those. I think it's essential. Um, I think even if we don't go ahead with this, it is essential that we uh, start teaching civic literacy properly in this country. Um, it, it, the, the reasons why are piling up and up and up as the kind of the political discourse is getting really polarized around us. Um, the amount of um, unfiltered information that's available to students but adults alike on uh, you know social media like Facebook and Twitter, we need to be properly educating ourselves. So not just students, but just people in general. And we should have a robust civics program. I'm of the thinking that it should be a full credit course in grade 12 so that we are teaching kids while they're preparing to vote. Now, if they change it to 16, then that's a different conversation. But uh, we need to be treating it properly and with respect, I think. Nathan Tidridge, we always love having you on. A civics teacher, award-winning civics teacher. I always say that because not many people can put that in front of their name and you deserve to put it there. Award-winning civics teacher at Waterdown District High School. Always love having you. Thanks for the time. Uh, Thanks, Scott. And I'll tell you, I remember where I was in the OJ. uh, Oh, yeah? I was in school. They put it up on the TV screen, which I thought was kind of strange, but I'll never (laughs) forget that, watching him in math class, I think it was. I appreciate the time. Thank you, Nathan. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. If you are, at least if you're over 30-ish, give or take, maybe 32, 33, I don't know. But you were, if all, if you were like every other human, but certainly in North America, you were somewhere watching O.J. Simpson race down the highway in his white Ford Bronco. It became one of those, where were you moments? And the embarrassing thing, I suppose, about it, the the disappointing thing is we like to believe that most of the where were you moments were things that really in a colossal way altered life as we know it. Neil Armstrong stepping on the moon or in a bad way, JFK being assassinated or Paul Henderson or Sidney Crosby scoring their goals. Maybe even last weekend for some people with the Raptors winning although it didn't have that singular, dramatic, instant moment like those things did. This this was, O.J. Simpson was more of the, uh, two people died, so I don't want to, like, it's not mocking, but it was the, it's the puff pastry of pop culture. There wasn't, it, it, it was a, it was one of those things that we all watched because it was entirely compelling, and yet it was what was what was the end of it? What was the... I mean, there was race relations that came to the fore and there was a discussion about that and all the rest. But anyway, I want to know where you were because this is one of those things that when you talk to people, first of all, it is stunning that it's been 25 years. It is, abs- to me, it is absolutely un- implausible that it's been 25 years. I cannot believe it's been that long. But where were you? Where did you watch the, because I know you were, where did you watch the O.J. Simpson car chase from? 905-645-3221, star 9900. Who were you watching it with? What were you doing when you discovered that it was going on, that you quit doing to go find a television set? I'll tell you, I was at home. There's a, I think this is a great story because it's so typical of what so many people in a different kind of way were doing. My wife was hosting a bridal shower for a friend. There were 
I don't know, 15 women up in my living room. Having a bridal shower, I was in the basement watching on our one TV at the time that we had in the house. And one of the women said to me, let us know if anything happens. And so I was down there and I was eating soup or something. I don't know what. And all of a sudden he pops up on TV on the highway. And so I snuck up the stairs and just whispered around the corner to the one lady. I said, uh, they're chasing him down the highway. And the entire bridal shower picked up all their food, all their drinks, all their presents, all their bows, all the rest of the stuff that you do in a bridal shower and moved it down to the basement. So I got to enjoy OJ Simpson being chased down the highway with, in the midst of a bridal shower that I was suddenly a part of. I don't know that the eventual bride thought that that was a great bridal shower or a terrible bridal shower, but that's what they did. But what were you doing? 905-645-3221 or star 9900. Because I know you were watching. Anybody who says that they were not watching, there was only one of two or three possible explanations for that. One of them was you were in a deep coma, which is possible. You know, maybe... Maybe you were unconscious, medically unconscious, and they, you couldn't. Uh, you may have been out of the country. You may have been away somewhere. I don't know how this played outside of North America. I don't know how much coverage you got outside North America. Maybe you were at work or something and you couldn't get to a TV set. But most people, almost everybody that I've ever talked to, of my age, of my era and younger and older, we're watching OJ Simpson race down the highway. Where were you? What were you doing? 905-645-3221, star 9900. Tell you the one thing about that chase that I always remember. I mean, there's a lot of things that we remember because it's a very memorable thing for all kinds of, as I say, ridiculous reasons. But the thing that always strikes me the most about that chase is that Nobody knew this was going to happen. Nobody was aware that suddenly O.J. Simpson was going to be in a white Bronco going down the highway. If they did know that, the police would have certainly got him before he got on the highway and led us on this, led everyone on this chase. And when I say us and everyone, I mean, think of all the millions. I think it was like 96 million people watched this. That was just in the States. He was leading everyone. But the thing that always amazed me is without any warning, O.J. Simpson and Al Cowlings are driving down the highway And there are people, you'll remember this, at all the overpasses, parking their cars and cheering them on, everything else. And many of them had homemade Bristol board signs. Where did the signs come from? Who who carries around empty Bristol board with arts and crafts supplies in the trunk of their car just in case they suddenly are to come upon a B-level celebrity involved in a police chase? Where, where, how fast could they possibly whip together those signs? It was, it was incredible. Never could figure out where those signs came from. Anyway, 25 years ago today. So we're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, I want to hear from you. Where were you? Who were you watching with? What were you doing when suddenly you were aware that OJ Simpson was racing on the highway and who were you sitting with and what did you do that evening? You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. We are talking about what happened 25 years ago tonight, right around this time, maybe a little bit later than this, wherever you were, whatever you were doing, chances are you ended up in front of a TV set 
watching the O.J. Simpson chase. That was 25 years ago today. Stunning that it's that long ago. And I want to know what you were doing, where you were watching, because everybody was somewhere. Everyone was doing something. Everyone was with a friend or at work or in, in a restaurant or at a bar or in a store, whatever, and was watching from somewhere. I want to hear from you. 905-645-3221, star 9900. It was one of those moments. Frank is up first today. There you go. Frank, how are you tonight? I'm quite well. You know, this is, uh, you know, where were you? Everybody was watching watching it somewhere. I was like, I was at home. But you know what? It really it was really perplexing to me. How many people did you say worldwide were um, watching this at the time? The number in, North, in the States, the number was apparently 96 million. Isn't that something else? You know, but you know, Scott, what really perplexes me, here's a guy, he's without colonies and going down, down the freeway in, the, in a brown, and you know, that took about an hour. No, it took eight hours to get him out of that car. Uh, I'm not sure it was that long, but it was a long time. I, it was a long I time. Think it was. Well, I think, I think by record, it could be around eight hours, you know, and so he's, he's running away. He's got a gun to his head, so to speak. And, you know, to this very day, which was very, very perplexing to me, Scott, is the 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 hunt for the killer ceased after he got off. Like like he was found innocent, and then the big question is, well, who who killed her then? Come on, Frank. Fra- to find that out, Frank. Right? Come on, you know the answer to that one. <laughs> I know the answer to it, but the, <laughs> the point is, you talk about injustice. Uh, it's it's you know, a... he's on Twitter Twitter now, you know, and he's trying to he says he's going to try to get even even with what. Uh huh. So where where were you watching, Frank? I was watching at home, I guess. I, I mean, it was, I was just on your screen. It's like watching a, a soap opera, a, a very, very, the last showing of a very, very famous soap operas or the Super Bowl. It absolutely was. Frank, thank you, know you, for, the, thank you for the call. <laughs> no, absolutely it was. it was. It was one of those things. It was as compelling as anything else you've ever seen on TV. And that's the, that's the part. And that's why sometimes I think people don't like to admit that they watch this because it's so lowbrow in some ways. It was like, do you remember the show Inside Edition or A Current Affair or any of those? This was like that. This was like a, an extended edition of one of those lowbrow, schlocky TV crime shows. And yet you could not look away. You could not look away. And for the next, how many, year and a half until the trial was over? Two years, whatever it was, you could not look away. I know exactly where I was. As I said, I was sitting in my basement watching it. Uh, something that uh, I just discovered, I didn't realize this until today, because I had wondered whatever happened to the vehicle. I'd always wondered what happened to the Bronco, because certainly they wouldn't have destroyed it. It's worth too much. Well, it turns out, if you want to see the, the Bronco itself, it is in a museum. If you drive down to the Alcatraz East Crime Museum in Pigeon Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, why it's called Alcatraz East, I have no idea. Because it's not an island. But anyway, it's there. You can go see it at the Alcatraz East Crime Museum in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. Uh, The guy who owns it was O.J. Simpson's former agent, who you can also see he went on to Pawn Stars and tried to sell it to the uh, Pawn Stars guys from that, what is it, A&E, I think, or History Channel or whatever it is, uh, TV show. And he was looking for $1.3 million and they were not interested in paying $1.3 million. But it is stunning to me that it is 25 years ago today. Hmm. 
and now he's back. That's the amazing thing, too. O.J. Simpson, 25 years... I mean, you would think that after, by all accounts, according to almost everybody who's at least got four active brain cells to rub together and create some friction, almost everybody believes who did it. And I'm not going to say his name, but it rhymes with O.J. Simpson. (laughs) That's the... That is the general consensus, I think, among almost everybody. You would think that if you were that guy who was generally pretty much despised by almost everybody, you would kind of keep it on the down low, keep it low key, especially on the anniversary. I mean, it's it's the anniversary. You know this is a time when you just sort of go, okay, I'm going to hang out in my basement for a while if I'm O.J. Simpson. Uh Uh-uh. He's now back on Twitter, and he is... Well, he's got some things to say. Ben, do you have that one queued up, what he had to say in his first Twitter video? Did you have that one? Here's what OJ had to say the other day. Hey, Twitter world. You know, for years, people have been able to say whatever they want to say about me with no accountability. But now I get to challenge a lot of that BS and set the record straight. The end of another one that he said was, I got some scores to settle. How terrifying is that? O.J. Simpson saying that he's out there to settle some scores. God, Zooks, that guy is not all that bright. Anyway. Oh, yes. And as pointed out to me by an a, a emailer just now, a true fact, because I remember this one, that uh, Ford Bronco sales went through the roof after that chase. Not surprisingly. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring in Don Robertson, who is the owner and operator and purveyor of ComChoice Realty. He is also the guy who runs the Dundas Real McCoys during hockey season and is a counselor and advisor to folks near and far. Thanks for coming in. Thanks, Scott. You, uh, on the way up the stairs into the studio, you said you would not have wanted to be at the parade in a million years. Why not? Well, first of all, there's, uh, there was a lot of people that I don't know what you would have seen, um, Assuredly, there was more people at the Raptors parade than the Blue Jays will draw this year. That's that's an interesting point, but you're absolutely right. Right, they're playing tonight, and I'm sure they've got a decent house of about 165 people. Someone someone tweeted out, they're going to start a Let's Go Raptors chant as soon as all 20 people at the game can congregate on the lower level. So, yes. Yeah, it's, um, well, it's, I went to Canadian Open and was fortunate enough to have clubhouse passes and can tell you that wasn't a good place to watch the golf. Rory's making a run for it, and all you can do is follow it on um, the L- or PGA score thing, so you can't see it. And the, same, the parade would be the same thing. I, I'm thinking, really, unless it's an experience you wanted to take your kids or your grandkids to, just to say you were there, being the 20 deep along University Ave., and watching a bunch of great big guys on a double-decker bus drink beer and champagne is... Now, if I could have been on the bus to take a look at the crowd... And knowing your connections, you might have figured that out. I thought about it this morning. It might have been too late to ask. But uh, uh, who was the big guy I was talking to? But you tweeted about him. Mark Gasol. Yeah. Looks he, like he may have enjoyed a cocktail or two. He looked a little like Wayne Cashman when they had the speeches after they returned from Russia and won the Canada Cup in 72. He was, he may have been fully refreshed. And as I, re, and I, I don't, I'm not on Twitter much. I said it would take a few to fill that lad up. He's a big, 
big boy. Well, if if you you are driving intoxicated, if your blood alcohol level is point zero eight, I think Mark Gasol was at three point two. Yeah, <laughs> he was. He, I think they just had run a uh, intravenous pure alcohol drip into his body. He, well, he I, was enjoying himself. I'm pretty sure that. Likely they've had limited sleep since they won it. Those well, guys are ready to, to unwind. On the way home. They went to Vegas on the way home, and and you know they didn't go to Vegas to watch the Celine Dion concert from the back row. They were, they were out, uh, probably spending Drake's money, and a lot of it. Drake pro- probably flew a bunch of them home on his jet. He did. He did. And I guess his, his jet had a flyby, left Hamilton, and had a flyby, and the uh, Jake could give uh, Kwai. Oh, oh, pardon me. That's all right. An extra ten million to hang around. All he's got to do is hammer out another song. Yeah. Well, he apparently dropped he dropped two new songs on Friday after they won the championship. So I mean, I I kind of wish that that was my gig. That just you know you you don't really do anything, and then all of a sudden you say, okay, here's a little bit of work. Boom, and there's a million or two or five or ten, and yeah, let's fill up the bank account again. Yeah. A draw just, below a billion. Just to cover the cost of the champagne you blew off on uh, in Pardon Vegas. Me. And I'm it. thinking they're not drinking the $19 bottles of champagne. Well, yes and no. So the uh, the champagne that they had in the locker room that they were spraying around, I looked it up. Yeah. And it was $20 champagne, which is smart because you're only of taking a little is. sip here and there. And some of those times- Could have been soda water. Well, some of those places, you've seen some of those teams where they bring in the expensive champagne. It's like, who's the idiot? Yeah. Why would you, you're, you're not even tasting it. You're just spraying it. You're right. It could have been ginger ale and who cares? I'm getting the sense that MLSE, who owns the Raptors, really treated, really treat these guys first class. I'm sure a lot of the NBA teams do, but there's always levels in professional sports where you, you hear the athletes talk about how this team treats you versus that team and. I'm pretty sure that the Raptors have done this top shelf for a long time because you got to get your passport out every time you go, and it's an inconvenience. So let's make sure everything else is top shelf. And they may have had an extra fifty or sixty million in the kitty with the playoff run, so they could afford to throw. Well, a couple. that's what I was going to say. Pretty yeah. easy to be a big shot when you got full rinks and you're selling ten million. Well, I was thinking we the t- North T-shirts. Yeah, I was thinking today as they were. The, everywhere along the parade route, there were people with the thing throwing T-shirts into the crowd. And there must have been 5,000 shirts thrown into the crowd today. And I thought, well, that's going to add up. And you think that for about a third of a second, and you go, well, wait a second. Yeah, that's right. If, if it's $3 to make every shirt, I think that might be high. Well, you know, we, we watched- There's 15 grand. All the finals. Of course, Sue thought we needed uh, Raptor shirts, We the North. So the only thing I could get was it, is it uh, Jin, G-I-N? He's on the, is that how you spell his name? Oh, Jeremy Lin? Lin, yeah. Yeah. So I got a 17 shirt, and then I got- They were the only ones available. <laughs> got, yeah. It was, it was the only one available. I yep. went to Sports Check and said, do you have any? And that was game five. Nope, they're all in Toronto. And the manager walks by, what's he looking for? Raptor shirt. He said they forgot one, and that was it. So, and then uh, we had a uh, got a We the North one. So I thought maybe you found one that was like a factory rejects that had a spelling mistake. Yeah, <laughs> We the North. <laughs> <laughs> there'll be there'll, there might be some counterfeit 
uh, jerseys out there and shirts out there. Uh, eh? I would think for sure there will be. But no, that, that you realize, and look, I, I'm, I don't know that I'm convinced anymore that if the Maple Leafs won, that it would be any bigger than this. I really don't think it would. I I was thinking that today when I was listening to it. You know, I was in the was in the truck a lot today, driving around, and you start hearing about you know there might be three million people here, and I get thinking, I don't know if the Leafs. I mean, it, it would be a different crowd. You I know, think that I many. Think, well, many of the people who were there today were there because it was a party, and so it doesn't matter if yep. they're young, old, what nationality or race or whatever. You would have people come out because it's a party, so. And you would certainly sell every seat in Maple in uh, Maple Leaf Gardens, uh, in uh, Scotiabank Place through the playoffs for an extraordinary amount of money. And if they ever got to the finals, the money they would make would be through the roof and all the rest. I mean, but you realize, I, I think the interesting thing out of this whole run is, I would love to be a fly in the wall in the next MLSE board meeting. Because all along the perception has been the Maple Leafs make all the money they possibly can just by being the Maple Leafs. Yeah. And now you sit down with the books after the Raptors have gone all the way to the finals and you see and you're able to put a dollar figure on what that was worth. And I wonder, I truly wonder if that changes anything with how they suddenly handle the Leafs. Well, I uh, I can, you talk about the price of Leaf tickets and I was listening to a fellow talk that went to Oakland and he just he went himself and he was asked, how did you get tickets? Well, tickets weren't that hard to get, and it was cheaper to fly to Oakland, stay overnight, and get the ticket than it was to go to a Raptors game. So it sounds like the Leafs. Mm-hmm. How many people have you heard say, you know, we'd rather go down to Florida because you can get tickets for 40 bucks. We flew with f- some people from Hamilton one time who were doing that. Yeah, you fly out of Buffalo you can and, and stay for the weekend and see a game. Cheaper than you go to a Leafs game if you can get a ticket. Yeah, no, it, it was... I do think that the theory that's always been there or often been there that the Leafs, you know, obviously the the home dates will help the bottom line, but that's not just what this is about. I think the Raptors probably sold tens of millions of dollars worth of merchandise, probably sold millions of dollars in spin-off ancillary things. The uh, the cost for the commercials went up for all the stuff. I I bet you that for MLSE, who hasn't had a team other than the Argos or TFC, which is not on the same level. No, I'm sorry. I'm not it's insulting. Not one of the, it's not one of the big four. I'm not insulting those people who love soccer. We've been down this road. I, oh, man. I, Don, I, every time you say it's not one of the four main major In North, America, North American not. sports, people lose their minds. It's not. It's just not. But anyway, I think that they haven't had the experience of having a team do this. And I, I would bet you that even for MLSE, there has been some wide eyes at how much money is flowing in. Well, here's what I'm pretty sure of. Larry Tannenbaum is a basketball game. He's chairman of the board of MLSE. He's also chairman of the board of the NBA. So his passion is more for hockey or basketball than hockey. And I, I'm not convinced that, that the big payday was this playoff run. I'm convinced the payday is... Here's what the ads are now on TV for the Raptors. Here's what the season ticket packages are. Um, when they moved into the Air Canada Center, which is what it was called at the time, and the Leafs owned, uh, you know, they ended up, MLSE bought the Raptors. And if you wanted Leaf tickets, you had to buy Raptor tickets. And it was the only way they could fill the building. Well, that will not be the case anymore. 
and the prices will not be inexpensive. Hence the comment for the guy that flew to Oakland to watch a game and stay overnight because it was cheaper to do all that than go to a Raptors game. Except I think that the Leafs run a risk with the Raptors with that. And that is that I don't think you have the depth of... Well, we'll see. Well, we'll see. Because with the Leafs, you have the depth there of history and everything else that you know the corporations are willing to fork out. And you look at who's sitting in the stands. I think if you suddenly start gouging Raptors fans who are not suits in the stands, you may hurt yourself. I don't know that I bet they give it a whirl. Here's what I'm praying, though. That now that I've watched a bunch of Raptor playoff games and have a far better appreciation for the sport, I, I'm almost praying that Canada don't go to the World Cup and win it in soccer because I just think that's going to be a stretch for me to get as excited about soccer as basketball. But they do call it the beautiful game, and there's a lot more soccer fans in the world than there are likely any other sport. You know what, though? It's interesting you bring this up because I'm not convinced that we would have the same response. And I'll tell you why, only because of one reason. At every time the World Cup rolls around, there are thousands and thousands of people in this city and Toronto and elsewhere who are still cheering for Italy, and thousands and thousands are still cheering for Portugal, and thousands and thousands are still cheering for Greece or whoever. I don't, I don't disagree, but I think it's because Canada doesn't doesn't do well. Uh, probably yes, I, I think it's it's like okay, so if the Leafs aren't in, I really like Vancouver, but if the Leafs who's ever said that? Well, no, I just <laughs> all right. So it was a bad example. In any event, you're right. The other thing for basketball that that I have a, a different appreciation for, not their athleticism, because you could, you, I mean, you know, they're great athletes. I think the thing that that makes it different is the court is small. The fans are five feet from the sidelines. I think we talked about this, mm-hmm. and you get to see the facial expressions. You get the definition of how well built they are. And hockey players got masks on and shoulder pads, and football players do. And I mean, you can almost get. To think you know the guys, mm-hmm. so I think I think that makes a difference. I'm uh, and I also we talked about it last week what what uh, Kevin Durant's uh, effect would be, and I think I suggested I'd have tripped him a couple times. He dominated when he played. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Like I'm kind of convinced. You said that you would have kicked him in the calf, and I think now. Well, that sounded a little harsh considering what happened, but. Well, he went down. I went. Oh, <laughs> yeah, maybe I should have been nicer. Trying to be funny, I said I'd have tripped him or kept. I, but I. Just, the other thing I said is I would put all kinds of pressure on him, so you test his, mm-hmm. and and it wasn't his calf. No, it wasn't. Now and, it may have been. May, we may find out if you talk to a doctor. They're going to say if your calf is that damaged, and you're favoring it, the Achilles is more prone to give out on you. But I can tell you, I think they could have had the prayed at JL Greitmeyer if Grant, Durant plays the whole series. He was, he was pretty good. To go back to the idea of MLSE, though, I do wonder if seeing the bottom line, seeing how, how much money was made on this, if this changes anything with the Leafs, including the pressure on Kyle Dubas and Brendan Shanahan and those guys to win a championship or at least go on a long playoff run. Because when you've seen clearly how much dough can be made through success, and I don't mean just the Leaf success of just being the Leafs, of a long playoff run. You wonder now if they are saying, huh, there's there's an extra $30 million if we can make it three rounds into this thing. I don't think wondering hard will help them win, though. No, 
But I do wonder if the if as I said, I do ramps wonder up if the pressure a bit. Absolutely. We now this is money that we can make. We've invested in these players. You will get to the third round next year, or something's going to happen. I, I I don't know how you force a team to get to the third round when they can't even make it out of the first round. But boy, I think that. When you start having that kind of money flowing into your coffers, you probably really like having that money flowing into your coffers. I don't know how much the St. Louis Blues spent this year on their salary cap, but everybody knows they were in 31st place. And to go from 31st and they're going to have an awful lot of money tied up and a handful of hockey players, and Boston and St. Louis proved what anybody that's followed the game at all knows is that you're third and it's it's the same at our level. You got to assume your top six are going to be kind of a, a wash when you're playing another good team. So it's going to be your third and fourth line if they can excel and you can get some support scoring, secondary scoring, that, you know, things are going to turn out an awful lot better for you. And St. Well, Louis also, and I've, everybody knows it that watches hockey, if you haven't got good goaltending, you're not going anywhere. And both teams have good goaltending. And St. Louis might have out uh, might have out goaltended them in Game Seven because the shots were like seventy five to three in the first period. That might be an exaggeration, but maybe a little bit, but not all that much. Now I'm looking up here; I can't find off the top of my head. I can't find easily where St. Louis was, but it's. Uh, I it bet is, they didn't spend as much as the Leafs and the Bruins. No, I guarantee you. But it is just such a reminder. It is such a reminder when you see this. And you see how many people in the crowd today were wearing something that was Raptors yeah. mer- memorabilia, merchandise, r- licensed gear, whatever. You realize just how big the pro sports industry is, how much money is involved. And, you know, for everybody who says, you know, why, why do people waste their money? And all, Look, it's people's choice what they want to spend it on. And that inspired enough passion in all those people that they wanted to spend their money to buy something to be part of that team, part of that tribe, whatever you want to call it. It just shows you how much money there is in pro sports, especially if you do well. They very well may have made $20 million on paraphernalia. Oh, I bet it was more. I bet it was more. Yeah, could have, yeah. I mean, if they're making... Yeah, yeah, those, those, uh, yeah, it is. It have to be. I mean, I paid like $18 for a T-shirt and 42 for the one that had Lynn on it, or Jen. What's his name? Lynn. Jeremy Lynn. Jeremy Lynn. There yep. you go. No, it's, I, it would be, if there were 2 million people there today, and those were the estimates, a million minimum had to be wearing something with wrappers on it. Minimum. A million, half the half the people there at least, and I would say it was probably two thirds at least. But and let's say every one of those was fifty bucks, so fifty bucks times a million. There's fifty million dollars. Now they didn't all buy them this year; they may have had them before. But let's say again, half. There's twenty five million, and I bet it was a lot more than that because there's a lot of people who weren't at the parade who bought stuff. Uh, so one sitting at home having a glass of tea on the. There you go. It's uh, it, it just it's it is just stunning how much money is in the mix there. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. In studio with Don Robertson. We we're just finishing up. We're going to go into something else, but just during the break, interesting point came up by Don. He was talking about the politicians who were on the stage at the parade. I would 
pay money, I would give a generous political contribution to any political party that passed a law that said at any sports parade, politicians are not allowed to be part of it. Get off the stage. Don't speak. This is not about you. John Tory, Doug Ford, Justin Trudeau, you didn't play. You didn't win a championship. Get out of the way and let the players have their moment. Anyway. Just you know there's a federal election in October, right? I Of course. And Jugmeet Singh was there as well. It's like, it becomes a political rally. You didn't do anything. Get out of the way. This is not your moment. W- one more thing on this, yes. if I can. Do they go to Ottawa or do they go to Washington? Who knows? Uh, Ottawa came to them, I guess. I don't know. No, but will they go there? Will they invite Probably the not. team there? They may invite them, but he already just met them all. Why would, they, why would they go then? He just had their moment with them. Well, not if you had your way. I just, I, I, I get it. It just, I'm talking, I'm not talking about, if you want to invite them to the White House or Parliament or whatever else, that's different. This yeah. is their championship parade when the two million people are there. Not one of those two million people showed up and said, golly, I hope the Prime Minister is in attendance. Geez, I hope Doug Ford is there. Wow, I hope John Tory shows up. Not one person said that. They don't need to be part of this. This is nothing to do with them. I, I had a big debate today and... I mean, I don't think Drake should have been on the float. He didn't do anything in this, but he's Drake and he's part of the team's ambassador. I'm surprised they didn't have Nav Badia there. They did. He was the honorary parade marshal. Was he? Yeah. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Scott Radley Show in studio with Donald S. Robinson. Robertson. Now, when I try and throw your whole name in there, I even get the last name wrong. Yeah. Tells you what Monday's like. There's no S either. No, I know. Well, it's, what Donald, is the middle? You think of Donald S. Cherry? Donald well, James. James, okay. No, I, I don't hear it now that my mom's passed. I just assumed that it was S because Donald S. would be the yeah. uh, the correct usage. <laughs> uh, Simone Lawrence, Ticats opening game delivers. Uh, look, I, I don't think the, the only people who are arguing that they hit that Simone Lawrence threw onto Zach Caleros, three plays, four plays, whatever it is, into the opening game of the season. The only people arguing that that was not a filthy play are Ticat fans who are unable, apparently, to see past their fandom. I mean, that's just reality. It was a dirty hit on a quarterback who was giving himself up that flew right in the face of everything the league has been preaching for the entire offseason. And to that point, I say to those who say it was not a dirty hit, all I ask you is to consider one thing. If the roles had been reversed, and that was Jeremiah Masoli taking that same hit three plays into the season, so he's now going to be out for over a third of the year, tell me if you would have said, oh, no, that was fine. There's no chance you would have been okay with that. So let's just acknowledge that whether you want you don't have to say that Simone Lawrence is a dirty player. I'm not asking you to make that leap. I'm saying it was a dirty hit. But Don, that being said, is two games, because he got two games today, the CFL came down and he says he has a two-game suspension. Is that sufficient for such a play? Well, being absolutely neutral to look at it, and with the talk of player safety um, in all sports, if you're going to try and reset the clock on um, player safety in, in any league, you have one opportunity to set that standard higher and that's the first opportunity you get when there's a blatant foul. And he he hit him in the head. I don't I don't think the kid's a dirty player. But it, you're, as you pointed out, it was a dirty hit, and he could have been 
the cleanest guy and the best guy in the community that any football team's ever seen in their entire life. It was a dirty hit, and that's your opportunity. Now, the bad part is, and is Claris going to be out for an extended he's period a, of time? So he missed essentially the entire first game, and he's on now the six-game injured list, so he'll have missed seven okay. games minimum. So more than a third of the season he is out for. So Saskatchewan's year is now in jeopardy as a team because he was their starting quarterback. So there's your opportunity to set the bar high. Because what do you do if a guy's only out of that game? And they had the luxury of finding out how badly he was hurt because, you know, the suspension's out. What 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 do you do if you get a hit and the guy doesn't miss six or seven games? Like, do you only give them one game? This is the this that's is the, the problem. Yeah, this is the, the argument all the time: is that we always in sports penalize the result, not the action. Yes, yes. I mean, that's that's a two game suspension, even if he gets up and finishes the game. I would say, in so. my mind, I would say so. And it should never be based on the result of the injury, but it's human nature when it's a quarterback. When you're a quarterback driven league and someone hits your quarterback like that, and there's not a lot of star power in the CFL, and you take one of your stars out, and the leagues say, all right, we're really going to hammer him this time. We're giving him two games. Well, if Mazzoli gets hit like that. People here will lose their minds, and justifiably so. Certainly. Justifiably so. If Jeremiah Mazzoli takes a hit like that late when he's already slight, and again, there are, there are factors in this that you have to take into consideration beyond just... Because Jeremiah Mazzoli, in all likelihood this year, will take a very hard hit from someone at some point. But if he is giving himself up and is already in his slide, that is a factor. It's not just a guy on a bootleg who's running out and gets clobbered. There are factors here. Every factor in this suggested that this was a dirty, unnecessary hit. And as far as I'm concerned, I'm with you. Two games... What exactly would you have to do then to get three games or four games? Does his head have to be rolling down the field? What what would you have to do? Because I'm with you. I, I thought you come in at four games right now. And then if the union appeals and it goes to an arbitrator or whatever, at least the league can say, look, we're taking this seriously. We tried to really set the bar high, but we were... Rebuffed. Well, on, on a on a year when they're talking <clears throat> when they're talking about resetting it, that's your chance to give somebody five games. Yeah, and then if the players' association appeal it and it goes to four or it goes to three, then you can have a conversation. But it's two. And how? And do if you- it gets reduced, if the players' association appeals and it goes down to one, it's laughable. It's laughable. Well, then th- see, here's the chicken and the egg of it. So now it's two games, which you could make a pretty strong argument that was a good opportunity to set the bar high, right? If if that hit results in a five or a six-game suspension from the league and Mazzoli's in a similar situation playing the Argos in August and the guy's coming in and he goes, holy crap, if I follow through with this thing, I'm going to get six games. Does that not help? I mean, does that not make guys pull up so the next quarterback doesn't get hammered again? Again, a quarterback-driven league. They're the stars of the league. There aren't a lot of stars in the CFL. They don't have a lot of marketable guys. Quarterbacks are a big deal in every city 
that has a CFL team. So what happens later this year? I don't think there's any team in the East that's any good this year except for Hamilton. But let's say there is. Let's say that Ottawa is as good as they looked against Calgary. They looked pretty good in their first game, way better than we expected. But So let's say that Ottawa, late in the season, is heading towards a first-round playoff matchup with the Ticats or a second-round playoff matchup with the Ticats. And one of their guys says, well, worth my while to take out Mazzoli. It's just two games. I'll get two games. I'll get to rest up for the playoffs. And their starting quarterback who drives their offense may be out for the year. That's, I don't want to be a jerk. I don't want to say that I would go and try it. But why would that not enter your head? And even, and even if you don't say I'm going to intentionally injure him, you can play so close or over the edge by saying, well, even if I do accidentally injure him, it really isn't going to cost me very much. Yeah. That's the problem. The penalty, the threshold for the penalty for doing anything like that now is not in the best interest of player safety. It's it not a deterrent. Might be a fair way to say it. And I don't, and I don't want, I don't want anybody to be suspended. I don't want, I mean, I talked about uh, uh, Tripp and Durant. I didn't want him to be out for an entire season. I just didn't want him to kill us. The other side of this, though, and we're waiting to see because there's been silence so far from the CFL Players Association. It finds itself in a very unique position. Not, I mean, it's, it's not unique in the sense that this happens all the time because it does. But here you have a case where you have two players who both pay the same dues into the union. And if the CFL Players Association decides to step forward on behalf of Simone Lawrence and appeal this, they are very publicly, after a summer of saying we are all about player safety, just like the league has said, you are saying we're all about player safety, but when the rubber hits the road, we are going to fight for the guilty guy and hang the victim out to dry. And that would be, to me, a terrible look for that association. That would be, especially in this case, where you've got a quarterback who has been the subject of numerous dirty hits that not all have been penalized. If, if Zach Caleros is the guy who they decide we would rather defend Simone Lawrence, the Players Association has a huge problem on its hands, public uh, perception-wise, public relations-wise. And, Don, even though maybe not all the players would say it, I believe a lot of the players would be saying, what the crap? What is going on that you are going to bat for a guy who just about took the head off of one of our brothers? What if the CFL Players Association appeal it? Yeah. And say this should be five games. That well that okay, first of all, what player association in that professional would, sports never has ever done it? That's never happened. I that would be that would be a brilliant maneuver. <laughs> I would think, although maybe some of the players, I don't know what the player, I don't know what the players would say if they tried that. Be interesting. I mean, I mean I was listening to you and I get thinking, hmm, what if the players association are sitting around having a pop and saying that's not, I mean, we can't have that in our league. We've got to protect our players. We've talked about it. We're going to have to take this into our own hands. We're going to appeal it because it's not enough. I've argued this for a long time. Zach Claros pays the same dues, he I'm does. assuming. Yeah, he does. I've argued this for a long time and not with CFL Players Association. I've said it with every single Players Association in sports. Every league should say to the heads of the Players Association, we are no longer dealing with player discipline. That is now in front of you. That play where Simone Lawrence takes out Zach Caleros, we're not touching it. It's your members. You decide what the suspension is, if, if anything, for, for Simone Lawrence. Great idea. If you think that's okay, let's let her go. 
It's your it's your call now. Boy. We're leaving it. And, and you know what? Yeah, if you tell us that you're fine with that stuff, that's okay by us because then the next time there is a class action lawsuit that comes down because we're not looking after the players, it's you that's going to be paying the price. It's you that's going to be in court defending it like what happened with the NFL, except with the NFL, they didn't go after the PA, they went after the league. But if, it, if, if this is your responsibility and you decide that you couldn't care less about player safety, fine. You go to court when the class action lawsuit comes in and you tell the, court, the judge and the jury why you didn't do anything about it. Well, if there's no suspensions, it certainly would make the games far more interesting. It would make them far more violent. You'd need more players. <laughs> you need a lot of... Pl- no, I'm not laughing at the injuries, but you're absolutely right. You'd go through them like crazy. Yeah, we're going to increase the taxi squad to 75. These guys are going to start going down like bowling pins. Why would it not make more sense to let the guys sort it out themselves? So have, have Simone Lawrence and, and Zach Caleros in a room arguing among themselves with their association about who should be getting what. Now, the problem is... Most of these guys are good guys. Probably, if it came right down to it and that situation was to present, Zach Caleros would eventually say, all right, I don't want Simone to be... I don't think you wanted to put me out for the year. Don't do it again. He would back off. He would back off. But wait till the first time it happens back with um, Angelo Mosca and um, Joe Cap. Joe Cap tried to even score yeah, but 45 now, years later. Now, when you have two people that hate each other, and they, because don't forget, Lawrence and, and Caleros were teammates and were good friends. Imagine what you would, imagine what Simone Lawrence would do to a guy who wasn't his good friend. Holy cow. But anyway, imagine now it's Cap and Mosca and they're in the room and they hate each other's guts and Mosca has tried to take off Cap's head. Now, now how's your discussion going about who gets what kind of penalty? So you're, you're pretty sure you don't think the CFLPA is going to appeal it and ask for I don't more? Know. No, I don't think they'll ask for more. And as I say, so far today, and we've been watching it, no word from the PA whether they're going to appeal this. I, I have n- This is entirely conjecture. I have nothing to base this on at all. But I'm sitting, I'm wondering if after, again, the whole off-season of the PA and the league saying we're all about player safety, if the Players Association, if Simone Lawrence were to come to them, wouldn't say, dude, you got to take this one. Because we can't tell, we can't talk to the fans for five months about this and three plays into the year go, oh, we were just kidding. My thought, which was random, although some might find it has merit, if any players association in any of the uh, major league sports in North America ever did that and said, that guy should be gone for 10 games, it would change sports. Yeah. It would change how everybody looks at it. I think leagues are always trying to err on the side of caution, and they're they pay these guys. They're in the entertainment business, and there always seems to be a double standard. If somebody hits Crosby versus somebody hits the fourth line guy, but that's just the nature of the of the sport. I would think that it would be it would revolutionize uh, the uh, players association across all sports if somebody ever stepped up and said that's not enough. Well, think of one more thing. We got to go to a break in a second here, but think about one more thing. The argument that players associations, not CFL but all of them use whenever they're fighting this is usually we can't we're, we're protecting the guy's salary, we're protecting his livelihood, which is ironic when you consider what happened to the other guy, but we we don't want him to lose the money. 
but think of how Zach Caleros has been affected by the hits that he's taken, the cheap shot hits he's taken. Last offseason, Mike Riley and Bo Levi Mitchell, the two top quarterbacks in the league, both signed contracts for about three quarters of a million bucks a year, which is a lot of money in the CFL. Zach Caleros, three years ago, was considered the likely most outstanding player of the league when he was with Hamilton. He then had a blown out knee and two bad concussions, and this year he signed for $300,000, less than half. So imagine if he hadn't had those injuries and those cheap shots to the head, what Zach Caleros' income would be. So when you argue that we have to protect Simone Lawrence or anyone else because we have to allow them to not lose their paycheck, you're, you're ignoring the fact that long-term, Zach Caleros has paid a lot more than that in income by the stuff that he has absorbed. Here's the interesting part. You've mentioned he's on the six-game injury list. He may not be back. That's right. This could, I mean, he could decide that this is the I mean, They know it's six games right now. You don't think that his family somewhere, his mom or his dad or his wife or whomever, I don't even know, are not saying, you've got to really think about this. You've had a bunch. Of, and so now this is a career, could, could be, we don't know. But so now let's imagine this is a career ending injury. Well, if the, if the association was to play association was to fight this because they want to protect Simone Lawrence's livelihood, what would that be saying then? I, 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 we, the fact that we have not to this point heard anything from the CFLPA gives me some hope that they will not appeal, which would be shocking because it almost never happens, but that they will not appeal and they will say, you know what, this seems like in the modern 2019 world, a pretty good place to be. We're not going to fight two games because we will look awful. And I hope, I hope they are smart enough to take that position and just say, we're washing our hands. Carry on. We'll see. I mean, it helps, of course, that two of the next two games that Simone Lawrence is going to miss are against two crappy teams. So it's really not going to hurt the Ticats all that much. It'd be much more interesting if this was heading into the playoffs or a run against, you know, must-win games. Well, I, I, I mean, I think suspensions in the playoffs are, if it's two in the regular season, it's one in the playoffs. I mean... Almost every league adopts things like that, the National Hockey League do. If it would be six games, you give them three. Kind of cut it in half because of the importance of it. But if that thing happens going into the playoffs, do you give the guy two games? Well, I'll tell you one more thing. we got to go to break. I'll tell you one more thing. Explain, we don't have time for you to explain to me, but just contemplate this one for a second. Why is Zach Calero sitting out against Toronto and Montreal when he has injured the Saskatchewan Rough Riders season? I've heard that argument before. I've made it before. Zach yeah. Caleros' two-game suspension should have been the next two games he plays against Saskatchewan. They should benefit. They're not getting any benefit from this. No. They get none. So Zach Caleros should be sitting out for two games, but they should be the next two that he is facing the team that he has injured their player. Plus, I'm not suggesting that in Saskatchewan there's going to be a riot in August when Hamilton goes there for that game and Lawrence is playing. But as someone else said, this is not my idea. Someone said this, I think, on Twitter today. Would have been a very judicious decision by the CFL to say two games plus one deferred suspended game, which is the one in Saskatchewan. Because the last thing you want is a game where suddenly everyone's running around just trying to kill everybody because it's been so hyped up and so built up. And that's, that's not what, that's the opposite of what we're talking about. That's not what it's supposed to be about. But don't be surprised. 
The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.